In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? but you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed over all... I saw portrayed... All over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of the house of Israel, which Azaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there, mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about twenty-five men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look, at, look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might understand you and be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, we ask that as we look at this chapter, you would teach us, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, and again, if it's of help, you'll find that there is, uh, of the seven points at the back, on the God who judges, Ezekiel 
chapter 8. Now it's interesting, isn't it, with uh, the Bible, when we look at the Bible, uh, so often people can miss out great chunks. When I, uh, before I started St. Leonard's, I asked a colleague if he could produce a 15-year preaching history. I did the same before I started as a vicar in Carlisle, 11 years before. And it's interesting how many evangelical churches, we miss out big parts of the Bible. We call ourselves Bible people, that the Bible is there to make us wise for salvation, that we might know God better, and we find that we don't deal with or skip over bits like Ezekiel chapter 8, because they're tough passages. And we either think, oh, that's Old Testament, I don't understand it, or we think that's got language that feels a bit unfamiliar, or we struggle to work out in which way it's written to us if it's also about Jesus. But this chapter is really important, and it is a chapter about judgment. We can't escape that. And it's interesting, isn't it, Then you find that uh, people today love the idea of justice. There's a lot of talk about justice, isn't there? But people don't like the idea of judgment. Particularly if we're in the dock. So we want things to be right and fair. We want justice, people to be treated rightly. But the idea of judgment, that God's justice might mean that we're in the dock, is something that we don't like. In fact, we might even go one stage further. It's not uncommon to discover that people feel that the notion that God is righteously angry, angry with unrighteous sinners is abhorrent. And therefore people redefine God, which is precisely the problem that you find in Ezekiel's day, as indeed the reason why most of the New Testament was generated. We've got to understand that God as he has revealed himself, because there is no other. That is the God we've been introduced to in Ezekiel chapter 1. Some of you may have read um, the book Knowing God by Jim Packer. He has a chapter on the wrath of God, and in that chapter he writes this, I'll put the quote in the notes. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play the subject of God's wrath down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Then he goes on to point out, there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to misrepresent God. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. But when we come to chapter 8, we cannot escape the fact that God is angry, righteously, with sinners. It is an anger that is deserved. And the God who revealed himself to Ezekiel in chapter 1 is a God of judgment, is a God of wrath. And he sends Ezekiel to a rebellious nation. Remember what we saw from those two references in chapter 2 and chapter 3? A nation who are obstinate and hard-hearted. A nation who God says will not listen to you because they do not listen to me. That's a tough call, isn't it, for ministry? It's a really tough call. It's a bit like Isaiah's call in chapter 6. No, we love it. Here I am, Lord, send me. And uh, who shall I go to and how long shall I preach for? And he said, well, you get to people who aren't going to listen. And you're going to preach to them so there's nothing left. Thank you very much. Can I have Christ Church Mayfair instead? No, that's taken. <laughs> but that's the reality, you see, of a lot of Old Testament ministry to God's people. 
And that the reality that Ezekiel faced here, and the first year or so of his ministry after that call, if you go from chapter 3, he doesn't actually preach, he makes a model. Under God's instruction, he makes a model of Jerusalem, a sort of um, a clay model. And he lies outside his uh, house, um, laying siege to this model. He is enacting what God is going to do, but not speaking to the people. And you can imagine walking past. He's got a bit serious. He's made a model, and uh, he's laying siege to it. It's really very, very strange and very odd. But it is unpacked. It's a picture of what God is going to do to the real thing. And the end of this uh, drama, because he's got to lie on one side and then lie on the other, and he's not going to eat very much at all. He's going to be emaciated. A picture of what will happen to God's people in Jerusalem, because of the famine that's put upon them for more than two years by the Babylonians. At the end of that enacted parable, if you like with the model siege works, with an emaciated, long-haired Ezekiel, he's then told to do something even more strange in chapter 5. He's told to cut his hair with a sword. Now, I cut myself shaving ever so slightly this morning. I was thinking, yeah, that's really good when you're speaking. Now, I hope it's not evident. I'm not going to go with a bit of tissue on my face. Unfortunately, you don't notice. Well, unless you're terribly kind. Now, imagine what it looks like for Ezekiel. He gets a sword, and he's emaciated, and he's been throwing some stuff at a model for a year or so, and then he gets the sword and he's shaving his head. Okay? So now you've got the really odd, strange, emaciated, bloody prophet. That's what he looked like. And then he takes the hair, he does something very strange with it. A third, he puts on the city and he gets out his lighter and he burns it. A third of it, he strikes around the city, the model city, with a sword. Okay? Just keep the picture. He's emaciated, weak, he's throwing up in the air again. That's Ezekiel. Don't worry about him. He takes God a bit seriously. And a third of it, he's to throw to the wind. And only a little bit of a hair gets stuck in his garment. And he's asked to fish that out, and even a bit of that gets thrown in the fire. And as you unpack the chapters in between chapter 1 and chapter 1, chapter 3 and chapter 8, you've really got this picture of God's judgment going on. Because the hair represents the people, and the clay model represents the city. What have you got left? You've got just a few remnants, just a few little bits of hair. And so serious is this judgment, but the time you get to chapter 7, it's described as the end, the end, the end. It looks total and final. And it's only at that point that the complacent, arrogant, and hard-hearted people, we're told, will really know, as God says, that I am the Lord. It wasn't until he came in judgment that the God who appeared to Ezekiel by the Kibar River was really recognised as God, even to those who had his word and called themselves his people. Now, in the light of that, it is really important that we understand what those people did to invite that wrath. Because although we are not the people of Israel, we are his people today. And if we see what they did to invite the judgment of God, then we might understand better how we must live as his people in an equally hostile and idolatrous world in order to avoid that judgment. So come with me then to Ezekiel chapter 8. It's actually a year or so after his first vision. The year is 592 BC. And once again, the hand of the Lord is upon him. The same figure from the vision of chapter 1, 
takes Ezekiel and gives him a vision of Jerusalem, God's city. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand, and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. And what happens in chapter 8 is four cameos, four scenes. You've had a lovely presentation of the last 15 years of Christchurch Mayfair. That's hugely encouraging. But what Ezekiel gives is four visions in the same way that actually are frightening. They're serious visions. Because they move from the perimeter to the heart of the sacred precincts of God and his temple. And each scene, we're told, is more detestable than the last and progressively unveils what has gone wrong with the people of God. And just as Ezekiel gives them that, or us, a visual tour of the temple, so in a similar way, these words rightly understood can be a little visual tour of our own hearts before this God. And therefore, each scene can serve as a warning for us, a reminder of what should be the right attitude to God and to the world around us, that we might not face the judgment of the God who speaks. So scene one, the idol of jealousy, and this reminds us that God demands our all. God demands our all. Chapter 8, verse 3. Halfway through the verse, the end part, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. There before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I'd seen on the plain. And he said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things even more detestable. What God sees and what Ezekiel is first shown is so detestable that it will remove God from his place of dwelling, that symbolic dwelling place of the temple. It's so detestable it will cause him to remove himself from his sanctuary. But is there a New Testament equivalent? Well, there is almost when the Lord Jesus speaks in a similar vision of God to the churches which were on the west coast of Turkey. We read about that in the book of Revelation. And he warns them, doesn't he, in a similar way, repent or I will remove the lampstand. I'll stop being present. You will no longer be a church. So we can't glibly say, well, that's Old Testament. We're in New Testament. We're okay. This is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this vision of a figure has remarkable echoes with the vision of a figure who is the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And there inside the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of God, the God who said, you must have no other gods before me. There in that temple was an idol. And we're not told here what idol, but it is very likely 
that it was a statue of Asherah, which if you read uh, through 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you see what happens, that that is one that is removed under Josiah, but almost certainly restored and replaced by Jehoiakim or Zedekiah. And it meant that as worshippers arrived at the temple, God's temple, that visual, symbolic picture of God in their presence, there was another alien deity right in the midst of the worship of God. And if it was an Asherah statue, then it was also associated with the degrading sexuality of the fertility cults. And notice, you see, they hadn't abandoned Yahweh. Very rarely do people abandon belief in God when they believed in God and were given his truth. Now, what they do is they add to it. They add the worship of other gods. And God doesn't say, that's lovely, that's wonderful, you've grown, you've become broader. No. <laughs> so it drives that God to jealousy. This is on a par with a married man committed to his wife in covenant promise and sexual exclusivity, inviting his lover to the marital bed and saying, why are you jealous? Why are you upset? I'm loving. I'm kind. I just broadened in my understanding. And reaction to that will not be selfish jealousy. It will be righteous and rightful jealousy, the rightful love and loyalty to which two people have committed themselves in covenant love. And actually it's the same with the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? We're called to the obedience that comes from faith. We're committed to a new covenant relationship with our Lord. And then if we become preoccupied with the idolatries of the world around us, just as Packer mentioned in that quote in Knowing God, or as the New Testament witnesses, because it does talk about idolatry for God's people, then we need to heed such warnings. And whilst it's difficult to make equivalence, there are equivalents. Some of you may have read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, An idol is anything which absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. Now that may or may not be right, but it's not a bad reminder, is it? Because if that is the case, it means we import frivolous idols all the time. We go, yeah, 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 you know, we want you to speak, Lord. Yeah, we've got your word. Well, they had his word, didn't they? Oh yeah, we believe that you're a glorious, wonderful God, but we just want to add what we feel gives us a bit more security from the world around. And you see, God, he doesn't get us lovely. No, he deals with it. He says, this will drive me from my sanctuary. Make no mistake, the Lord Jesus, God, his Father, both Old Testament as revealed and New Testament as supremely revealed, demands everything, doesn't he? He demands everything. He says, you come to me, you come and die. You're going to be a slave, but you've got a choice. Is it a slave to sin or is it a slave to me? You come to me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself. And we heard, didn't we, this morning, that Jesus plus nothing is everything. I once heard a man who lost everything in the uh, conflict in East Africa. When I heard him speaking, he was deeply humbling. He said, I didn't realise Jesus was all I needed, but I thought Jesus was all I had. And every time I remember that, I'm humble, because, you know, it's easy for me to pretend, like you. I go, I'm a Christian minister. I've given up everything. But I've still got a very comfortable house. I'm not in prison. I've got food on my table. And actually, I can flirt with the idolatries of the world just as much as any of us can. And yet call myself an evangelical who has God's word, who knows God's truth. It is a great warning for us, isn't it? In that first scene. God demands our all. Scene two. 
It gets worse. More detestable. Scene two is the secret worship of the elders. The secret worship of the elders. And that reminds us that God sees all. So God demands all, but God sees all. Let's come to verse seven. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, get in and see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals, and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of the house of Israel, and Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol. They say the Lord does not see. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now any Israelite reading this list would have had echoes of the prohibition in Deuteronomy. I'm not going to turn to it, but they match extraordinary. Don't worship these things, Deuteronomy 4. And what were they doing? They were worshipping these things. But what is even more shocking is that this is in the temple and it's with the elders, the 70 elders of Israel. Now, if you know your Bibles, that will ring bells. Because when the covenant was given, when the law was given with Moses, it was in association with the 70 elders of Israel who received the law and who say, <clears throat> sealed with the covenant, the blood of the bulls, which actually means that it's sealed by death, saying, we will do it. And here there are 70 elders right in the heart of God's presence, not keeping the covenant, but breaking it. And uh, Jezebel, I said a shape, and it's probably mentioned because Ezekiel, or God wants Ezekiel to know that this rot has reached the upper echelons of civil government, right to the heart of the people of Israel. And notice that they're doing it in darkness. They're doing it in darkness, indicative of both their hearts and their folly. For in darkness, why are they in darkness? Because they're saying, the Lord doesn't see. The Lord doesn't see. The Lord's forsaken the land. In other words, look, he seems to have diminished his promises. He's not a very good deity. He can't see. Don't put on the lights. If we do it in darkness, we'll be okay. And notice the mindset that they adopted. They are in the temple that we often adopt when we turn away from the true and living God. You see, first thing we tend to do is we diminish the authority of the word of God. They knew it was wrong to worship other gods. They knew it was wrong to worship these very images. But the law also made it clear that when people and the land were threatened, as they were and had been, what they needed to do all the more, said the law, was turn to the living God in repentance and faith and hold on to his promises. Instead, what they do is turn away from the living God and to the nations that are threatening them. And we can be just like that too. When it doesn't look like the promises of the Bible are working, are being fulfilled, we can somehow think that God is less than he is and that he will not really see if we hedge our bets, if we flirt with the world, if we adopt other gods, if we dismiss and ignore his word. And you can see it in all sorts of ways. I think it's very interesting, the Church of England, we had to record numbers 
I'm very against that, because the Bible never talks about numbers. After the great persecution in Acts 8, there's no number mentioned for the new heaven and the new earth, which is a great multitude that no man can number. You don't know the size of the church, do you? Well, what, we go, our church is big. Well, the Lord's got his church, and you know, you can't take away one person from it. But it grows as people are faithful to God's truth. And sometimes, you see, it might reduce when people are faithful to God's truth. Then in Paul's day, Timothy's day, isn't it? All of Asia deserves it. Or John 6, 5,000 have miraculous packed lunch. Jesus preaches who he is, where he's come from, what happens, let's go home. That's a church growth seminar for you, isn't it? Jesus, the Lord of the church, diminishes the size of the church because it's faithful ministry. But God's got it in his hands. Same chapter, you will raise up those God has given him on the last day. And we can make that mistake. If we go for numbers, we go, well, let's change it to make it popular. Because it's easy to get people in when they're going to hear what you want them to hear. It's a very simple way we can actually diminish the authority of the word of God because it doesn't look right. That was the case here, wasn't it? We're a foreign land, it's not working, they're more powerful, let's not worry, or let's change the message. All very subtly but powerfully, issues of human sexuality. Well, the world has changed its tune massively, massively. In the um, 22 years that I've been ordained, there has been an incredibly big shift. But now in evangelical churches, people are beginning to behave in a different way. Why? It's because the world has changed its tune. So Christians begin to say, the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. In other words, we can't really trust his word and his promises. He won't really mind. He won't really see. I had a retired evangelical talk to me not long ago at an event, and he said uh, none of us uh, would not invite him to a platform to speak on this issue, because he was not going to say what the Bible said. And he came to me and he said... Um, he said, uh, but, but evangelicals are thinking different things now. I said to him, 20 years ago, would they have done so? He said, no. And has the Bible changed? Of course it has. The world has. And when the world around us changed, what do we do? We diminish the authority of the word of God. God doesn't say Let's hedge our bets. He's forsaken the land. But thereby, secondly, we also distort the character of the word of God. You see, when they're saying God does not see, what are they doing? They're denying what God has said about himself. That's changing his character. He has said very clearly, I do see. And if you read the Psalms, he also says, and the idols do not see. they turned it around completely. They've diminished, they've changed the character of God. And again, we do exactly the same thing. When we're under pressure, when it doesn't look as if the word is bearing fruit, we begin to think that God's promises are dodgy. So we diminish the word of God, and we change the character of God. Well, now I like to think of God like this, because it's more popular. It invites less persecution. It's less costly. But we need to know that God sees all. He's taken Ezekiel to the heart of the temple. He's broken through the wall. He's opened the doorway. Do you see what they're doing in secret? And in the visual aid, the cameo of their own hearts, that's what God sees, doesn't he? When he opens the door and burrows in, do you see? Well, actually, the answer is you and I don't see what's in each other's hearts. But he does, doesn't he? He does. If you read Romans, you'll remind us there that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be the one through whom and by whom God judges the secrets of our hearts. 
It's one of that old prayer of preparation, so helpful, isn't it? Before all hearts are open, all desires made, from whom they seek to him. It's great to remember that. That is God. He sees your heart, he sees mine. And despite the world around saying something else, as it did then, they were wrong. And that's that second picture, the second image. The secret work of the elders reminds us that God sees all. We mustn't pull the world's belief system into the church because it's easier, more acceptable, or because we want to hedge our bets. It only invites God's judgment. And it gets worse. The next two scenes teach us what to do in the light of the God who demands all and who sees all. So scene three, the worship of Tamus. The worship of Tamus. And here's the lesson. Don't be deceived by what you see. Don't be deceived by what you see. Let's look at verse 13. Again he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw women sitting there mourning for Tamus. He said to me, do you see this son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Now I guess if we had this in our quiet time, we'd just kind of do a little uh, bump. You know, we'd jump over it. I've read it, but I haven't got a clue what's going on. So I'm just going to read it. <laughs> it's very interesting how a lot of Christians do that. And uh, we did Bible studies too, isn't it? It's what we call a knot. Okay, what most Christians do, we all do it. Okay, here's the Bible, here's a bit in the middle we don't know. It's a bit of a knot. So what do we do? We go, and then the bit one side, and then the other, just pull. Jump over the knot, hope for the best. What you've always got to do is you've got to work with a knot. And you've got to try and untie it to get that string. That's what we're doing. Uh, all the time, isn't it, when we're handling the Bible, it's what those who lead and teach and hang group leaders and small group leaders should be doing as well. And here is something immensely cryptic, because we're not actually told very much about Tamas. But Tamas was a borrowed deity. A deity that departed to the netherworld and lost his earthly kingship, his role as shepherd and his virility. So those who worship Tamas would be having a weeping liturgy. And Church of England have done one of those, actually, a weeping liturgy. And that's what they had, because the idea was the God of Tamas has departed. The God of Tamas is no longer a shepherd. The God of Tamas is no longer virile, and therefore now we weep. And here were these women who are weeping in the middle of the temple. And it's even more detestable than what we have seen before, so it must be serious. <coughs> now it could be that they were applying those... <coughs> Myths about Tamas to Yahweh. It could be they were saying, in the same way, Yahweh is no longer our shepherd. Yahweh's lost his power, and so we'll adopt this very helpful secular liturgy, and we'll put it into the liturgy of the people of Israel. Now we'll weep for Yahweh, as we weep for Tamas. Or it may simply have been that when they looked around them, there was a lot of their friends going for the weeping for Tamas liturgy. And you can imagine it in those uh, coffee mornings in uh, Babylon. You know, these are foreigners who come from Jerusalem, and they're under pressure. And there's all these other gods, and these very friendly women are helping them in the, uh, the local mums and toddlers group, or whatever. And so we found it very helpful uh, in our own personal walk with our deities to adopt the um, weeping for Tamas practice. And so what's that? What we'll show you. Come on, let's we'll show you. Do them go around, this is a lovely thing to do. And because, well, God's forsaken the land, he's gone away, it doesn't really matter, let's do it in the temple. Because at least then we're doing it on Yahweh's territory. I don't know what their thinking was. But it's easy to look around at the world and say, God's not powerful. 
Either we think that, yes, Yahweh has diminished his authority. He's not the shepherd anymore. Or we look at the world around and say, yeah, I like that practice. I'll just adopt it, adopt it, and make it my aim. And we can think at times that evidence for the true God is slender. We can look at the world around, can't we? And say, well, are his promises really being fulfilled? Is he really building his church? When you see areas that were so dominant in the Christian faith, diminished? Is he really going to come again when he hasn't yet? Is it really worth it, week by week? Setting forth the truth. Trying to believe the Bible. Praying. And the secular mind, in the West particularly, makes that pressure even greater. That the liberalism in the Church of England makes that pressure greater. We're bombarded with facts, aren't we? 2002 to 2014, 1.7 million people left the Church of England. In the same time, one, uh, uh, Islam grew by 1 million. Recent figures show that the attendance of the Church of England has dropped even lower. Pete Broadbent, Bishop of Wilsdon, said we're in last chance saloon. All the democratic evidence shows that unless we do something in the next five or ten years, we're shot. That's what we see. And maybe if we just adopted something of the world around, it would make a difference. But don't be deceived by what you see. This God is the real God. He has spoken. He will do, he will do what he has said he will do. The final scene. Most detestable of all, a picture of total abandonment of God where God is to be worshipped. So scene four is bowing to the sun. And the lesson, don't worship what you can see. Don't worship the created. Chapter 8, verse 16. He then took me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. They were bowing to the sun in the east. It's the final nail in the coffin. Not only have people disobeyed the very commands of God, but visually now, right in the temple, they turn from the creator to the created. Knowingly abandoning every command that God has given. Suppressing truth by their unrighteous behaviour. And when you're not sure whether God's going to keep his word, or when it doesn't look like it, when you feel an alien in a foreign land, and the gods of the foreign lands and the peoples of the foreign land look powerful, making it look as if you're a believer, you're a strange person. Why should you believe? There's great temptation to move away from the invisible God to that which is visible. To change our religion from creator to created, to the material, to the immediate, to the aesthetic, to what we see. We want something tangible to hold on to because what we should hold on to looks as if it's now very weak. But when we do that, turning away from the creator to the created, ungodly behaviour always follows. Look at verse 17. Have you seen this, he said to me, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do detestable things they're doing here? 
Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Whether that's a gesture or whether that's a practice, it doesn't really matter. But it's indicative of people who turned away from God and their behaviour has followed. Filling the land with violence. Behaving in a way that's completely ungodly. It's utter insult to the Creator. And when we're like that, However much we pray, and they did, he will not hear them. He will only judge them. Look at verse 18. Therefore I will deal with them in anger, the wrath of God. I will not look on them with pity or spare them, although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. These are a praying people. These are God's people who have God's word and they're in God's temple. But you see the mistakes that they've done, the missteps because of what things look like. They failed to remember that God demands our all. They failed to remember or realize that God sees all. Because of that, they diminished the authority of the word of God, they distorted the character of God. And the lesson don't be deceived by what you see around you. God is God. And don't worship therefore what you can see. Because God is God. Now you know, we're not Israel, are we? But we do live as aliens and foreigners here. We do live in a world in which there are many gods around and there's great temptation to import the values of the world into the church. After all, it will be more popular. We know that. Because the world are adopting them. Bring the world into the church, of course, you'll get bigger numbers. It can look as if God is not at work. It can look as if his word is empty and untrue. And a few people hold to it. But actually there is only one God. This God. And in one word he's revealed this word. And it was this God who chose to, before the foundation of the world, and had to walk on the pages of human history and die precisely because of his behaviour. That's why we can never move from the cross. Because if we move from the cross, we move to this kind of behaviour. And because we're likely to do it, we never cease to need the cross. And so forget the images of the temple. Think about the images of your heart. The God who demands all, the God who sees all, who knows all the secrets of your heart and mine, who knows when we're tempted to move away, tempted to be shaped by what we see around us, because it looks more powerful and popular, to be tempted to import and worship what we see rather than to the Creator. And what do we do then? But when we're tempted to despair, and the world and our way departs, all we can say is, upward I look, and see him there, who made the ends to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, and satisfied to look on him, and pardon me, even for Christians. 
And if we think or say, no, it's not us, and the Apostle John says we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But he also says that if we confess our sins, because of his justice, because of who he is, because he's this God, he will forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and bring us back under the lordship of the God who speaks. Yes, in judgment. And in judgment, he is our only hope. Oh, we're humbled when we realise that you see our hearts and then our thoughts. And though we know your word and are your people and pray, Father, forgive us for adopting the same folly so frequently. Are failing to realise you demand our all and that you see all. Of being shaken in our trust because of what we see. And of turning to a faith which requires sight. And Father, as we realise in desperation that we are sinful. In desperation that we can behave exactly the same ways and invite your judgment. We do indeed look to the Lord Jesus. Look to the one who stepped in our shoes and took that judgment. That we in him might be forgiven and made new to live obedient lives under your lordship, listening to him. May that be more and more who we are as we repent and believe in his name. Amen. Amen.